So welcome to the podcast. This is Anthony Malakian, and any regular listener of this uh, podcast knows that usually it's Dan DeFrancesco doing the lead-in, but he is right now on the Outer Banks in North Carolina on vacation, so that has left me to find in a fill-in, a replacement, and uh, you know, on short notice we couldn't find anybody that great, so we decided, screw it, let's call up my dad and uh, have him talk about his 40 or so years in IT. So I would like to introduce everybody to my father, uh, Lawrence Anthony Malakian. Say hi, Pop. Hey, folks. How you doing? I'm Larry. <laughs> Larry. And, Dad, you don't have to be that professional. I mean, I, I, can, I can hear your voice right now. You're in very <laughs> professional voice. <laughs> All right. If we're not going to be professional, can I make two complaints just to start? Sure. Go ahead. One, I was counting on Dan being there. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll let him know about your disappointment about him not being here. I, I, I don't like getting the second string. You know, I'm not used to that. Second. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if he's on the Outer Banks... I'm in North Raleigh. You know, maybe we can meet for a beer. Tell him to go and make the drive out to Raleigh, and I'm sure he'll be up for it. All right, what do you got, kid? All right, so we figure my dad, uh, he spent – well, when did you uh, start your career in IT? Uh, it depends on how you look at it. But um, in the middle of the Vietnam War, uh, 1965, uh, I go into the Marine Corps, and – uh, the Marine Corps sees, sees that I worked in a bank, and that automatically qualified me to be involved in their very first. The Navy was converting the Marine Corps' payroll systems from paper to computers. Uh, they con they put me into their very first computers that were in the Marine Corps, and I, so I wound up learning computers, and the ver these were just sorting machines uh, back then in, in the mid-60s. Wound up then in, when I got out, uh, with Equitable Life. Equitable Life was a great country. The, uh, Equitable Life, Assurance Society, uh, great company. And uh, worked there 25 years uh, doing all kinds of things uh, and, and watching the... The IT industry, what was called DPD then, Data Processing Department, not IT, but DP grow um, from sorting machines to the very first mainframes. And it's funny how when you look back, you see, you know, you guys right now talk all the times on your site about cloud. Well, it seems to me, looking from the outside in, that cloud is a generational change in the way um, processing is done. Uh, but going from sorting machines to mainframes, mainframes were the only thing there was from, you know, this t from the 70s to the 90s. And then in the 90s, I find myself uh, with Signer Insurance now and learning about, and in fact, educating my executives about something called servers and then from that i find my way to just the the wonderful company avon products and they had gone through a through a long period of starving it mm -hmm. they were looking to make uh to, to grow a global uh, it environment 
and I got the opportunity. I had gro- I had built data centers. In fact, for Equitable Life out in eastern Pennsylvania in the 70s, I had built a data center that people came from all over the world to see. But when you looked at Avon and what they needed, um, sometimes you just, you know, when you're hitting a golf ball and you find that sweet spot, sometimes in your career you find a job that was just made for you. And and that was the one. I, I found myself uh, building not only a global data center, but also regional data centers around the world to go with it. Yeah, well, I, um, just, I just remember Avon being, you know, I'm in school while at Cigna. We were in Connecticut at the time and then having to be uprooted my sophomore year to go move to it. a town called Carmel, New York, uh, so that you could go to Rye, New York. <laughs> Not Carmel, New York. It was Lake Carmel, and it was beautiful. We were in Patterson. We weren't in Lake Carmel. <laughs> well, close enough. <laughs> there was a lake. <laughs> <laughs> so you have all these years. You have these years of experience. Obviously, you've been out. You retired when? Retired 2009 involuntarily. <laughs> <laughs> But happily, I, I would say uh, I am incredibly blessed to have a son like you and my and your brother and sister, and uh, I am blessed. I have no complaints in life. Yeah, no one cares about that stuff, Pop. You know, we, we all right, I'm just telling you, you know. So Go the ahead. moral of this will be: you've worked in IT, you've been a manager in IT, built databases. Go through some of the lessons. I'm more than a manager, but all right. Yes, I've yeah, been a manager yeah. in IT. However you want to describe vice president. I'd like to think of it as an executive. I built data centers. I ran data centers. You ran the show. Global so. data centers. <laughs> and I ran the show. That was the difference between night and day. So, so you learned modesty at a very early age, obviously. And I think you taught it to me, yeah. <laughs> What were, let's go through some takeaways. Now, a favorite story of mine uh, is the Ed's Groba uh, story. Uh, why don't you yeah, tell, I don't know if we can use his part. name in public like that, but his name was Ed Groba. Hey, Ed, if you listen to this, I'm sorry. Uh, but, so imagine this. A kid, and I was a kid, I was five years at Equitable. And um, they're picking it. Uh, it was the middle of the Vietnam War, and there were uh, protests up and down Sixth Avenue in front of the Equitable Building. Right, we were we were right across the street from Radio City, and there's protests everywhere. And then somebody's pulling the fire alarm every other day, and and leadership decides maybe the chairman or the board. I don't know who decided, but we got to get out of Manhattan. Uh, so they, they bring in this incredible guy, Tony Randall, uh, was the, was a Colonel in the British army who, and responsible for their payroll system in Britain. And he comes to equitable and before you know it, he's in New York and now he's going to be responsible for the future data center of equitable life assurance. And in those days, equitable was uh, I don't, they may still be that they're, they're no longer equitable. They're AXA now, AXA. But anyway, he's going to pick a team to go to Pennsylvania, where he has decided to build this data center on the top of a mountain. And it just so happened that because he was military and I had military experience at a much lower level, 
we just hit it off. And when he decides to pick a team to go to Pennsylvania with them, the first guy he picks is me. And I wind up in Pennsylvania. We put shovel in the ground. He teaches me how to build a data center. I write every procedure in the building at every level, database operations, telecom, everything. And it was the opportunity of a lifetime. Just every now and then you, you win the lottery. Mm-hmm. So I'm there six months. I'm raising a family. I don't think you were born yet. You were born later. 70. You, uh, should I say how, when, what year you were born? 79, yeah. I'm 36 years old. I now. know, but I, I didn't know if I could say that on the radio. But you're born in 79. And I know it's a podcast. I, yeah, I like to hear this radio. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I get a call from the executive VP in New York. A uh, great guy. And he says, uh, can you come in and meet with me? And I come into New York. And he says, listen, we love what you've done in Pennsylvania, but we've been trying. Now, now people listening to this are going to laugh because generation data groups, GDGs, are almost a thing. They're not a thing in the past. We still use them, but, I mean, it's... It, it's hard to have a data center without GDGs, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, he asked me, he says we've had three failed attempts with our very best leaders to build uh, a generation data group process. And we can't do it. We keep hitting the same place and failing. We've had IBM in. They can't fix it. So I, he says, if you'll come back to New York, I know you can't bring the family, you have kids. We'll give you a hotel room. You, you live there for a year. You can go home whenever you want. We'll give you a company car. You do whatever you want. You're ours, but just make this work. So sure enough, I come in about four months into the project. We hit the exact same spot where everything had failed in the past. Now, one thing you might not be able to tell from my voice, my son knows. I am a personable person. I like talking to people that... <laughs> And I really don't care who you are. When we were in, when we growing up as an aside, we'd be in an elevator, and he would just start talking to the people in the elevator. He's one of those kind of guys. I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> well, one of the guy uh, guys I talked to, John. I don't know if it's good that I'm saying this, but one of the guys I talked to, let's say, is a database specialist. We won't name him, although we already did. <laughs> and he, <laughs> and he's uh. There's this problem three consecutive times a huge company has failed to implement GDGs because of the same problem. And it's about 10, maybe 8 o'clock at night. I might be exaggerating. 8 o'clock at night. And I have a, a conference room full of technicians. And we are stuck in the exact same spot. And I am as frustrated as I've ever been in my life. And I, I've been drinking all kinds of water. And I go to the head. And in comes this guy who I've always been friendly with, but he's, you know, I guess my grandsons would be would say he's quirky. So I'm at the urinal. He's at the urinal next to me. And he says, what's a big shot like you doing here at 8 o'clock at night? And I tell him about the problem we're having. And he says to me, geez, that doesn't sound that hard to resolve. And his, you, I mean, his mind just starts spinning the way it did. You know what I mean? He just went to another planet, 
And he says, I think I can solve that. I said, would you mind coming down to the conference room? He comes down to the conference room. He brainstorms with the technicians in the conference room. Within 48 hours, they solved the problem. Instead of being in New York for a year, six months later, in fact, five months later, I'm home. Um, and the and moral of the was, story being? The moral of the story is, well, there's two morals. One moral is when you tell your wife you don't want to have a third child, you shouldn't have them. <laughs> um, but the other moral of the story, oh, I'm sorry, that was you talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> the moral of the story is there are solutions everywhere. And if you constrain yourself to just dealing with the elite people in the organization or the elite people in the technology companies, you might miss out on an incredible breakthrough. And that's what happened with us. Now, it would seem to me that, you know, you come in, you know, the big shot coming in, that it wasn't even you that really solved this problem. Just by you talking to somebody in the bathroom, I think that you think exactly. that you solved this problem, but you didn't solve this problem. Uh, I did not. Did I say I did? <laughs> no, 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 but, you know, no, just... no, but, but, well, if you really want to get to the moral of the story, it wasn't water I was drinking. <laughs> Right. So now, what do you got to say? Hey, listen, I told. I listen. I'm having a beer myself right now. I'm having a new Belgian <laughs> nice. fat tire. You know, yeah, so that's great. Yeah. Oh, by the way, by the way. Yeah. Um, Guinness, I love, but Guinness's IPA uh, that they just came out with. Yeah, no, no it stinks, man. Yeah, it just stinks. You just drink the dark stuff. Other stuff, just leave that alone. Yeah, that was, that was a big mistake on their part. They they just don't know how to Pe do it. But people anyway. don't realize that. My dad grew up and he drank, well, I'm sure it's like, me, I remember growing up, next? he just drank Budweiser. Um, but oh, it was yeah. when I went to college and came back and opened his palate to the, the world of IPAs and pale ales and you things really like did. that. You know, Tone, you brought me so much joy and I'm so <laughs> proud of you. But the best thing of my life may be that you got me on to beer, so don't give me headaches. <laughs> I do what I can. What else huh? you got? All right, what else so, you got, Kip? Well, what else do you got, Pop? Tell me the funniest – tell me the craziest outage that you had to experience and maybe what was uh, diff difficult about uh, uh, solving that problem. Um, you well, don't the have to give the company name I if you don't had. want to, but yeah. No, let me think it, for It's a years later, sure. Pop. Trust me, no one's going to really matter, you know? Well, you know what I mean? The last outage is usually the one in your head. It's like the last touchdown pass you dropped, right? Yeah. So, um, I'm at Avon Products. We are uh, an incredibly, yeah, an incredibly fine-tuned machine. We are just doing great. Our, uh, we've we've got all kinds of internet channels open for sales, um, both internal and external. And our main internet site to the representatives goes down after a change. And, you know, so you, you go through change processes, right? Everybody on, on this pod, listening to this podcast knows about change. And you do regular testing, you do QA testing, you do volume testing. And there was just something antsy in the volume test. And one thing leads to another, and somehow we reach an agreement to implement uh, this change that, the volume test just looks quirky. It doesn't look quirky. It just doesn't meet our standards. But 
it's decided that it will be implemented. Well, that online site goes down for days. And six months later, none of the people involved in that are still working at Avon, including me. <laughs> but, <laughs> God, I hope this doesn't have a wide publication. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, if you're going to build a, a quality assurance system and you're going to build volume testing and you're going to do all it takes to do that and spend all the money it takes to do that, then believe the results, I guess, would be the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be one thing. Uh, one of the coolest stories I have, if you want a cool story. Yeah, sure. Do you want, you want a cool story? I want a cool story, Pop. All right. You sure? I'm sure. Let the, the, the audience is on the edge of their seat right now. Well, no, you did, did I raise you? You've won them over. Did I raise you to say please or no? I didn't raise you to say please. I'm a journalist. We don't say please. We just ask the question. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I'm really thrilled with you being a journalist, by the way. But anyway, um, I'm going to try to guess at the year. I, I might be off in the year. But it's, I think it's 1973. And I have been begging the uh, the uh, CEO, chairman of the board, that we have uh, some new thing. It's like an insurance policy, but they call it disaster recovery. Everybody, everybody listening to this knows what disaster I recovery know, is. I know, I <laughs> know. I'm just... It's 1973, I said, Tone. Nobody <laughs> knew what disaster recovery was. All right? Gotcha, gotcha. So, anyway, the uh, I'm begging for it. I can't get the funding for it. And uh, I'm dealing with the guy who invented disaster recovery. And a lot of people might think today it's SunGuard. Uh, it's IBM, but it's actually uh, SunGuard that invented, uh, at least as I know it. I'm, this this might come I'm as wrong on this. Well, and this also might come as a surprise to you, but SunGuard was just recently uh, sold for a couple billion dollars to a company called uh, uh, FIS, Fidelity Information Services, or something like that. So. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep. Wow, I love SunGuard. I do love SunGuard. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm dealing with a, a guy um, who has invented this thing. Can I use his name? Yeah. Am I going to jail after this or anything? I don't think so. You know? yeah. I mean, any kind of non-compete <laughs> or something like that you have definitely is uh, uh, like that. So, there's a guy, Bob Bogle. We had a few martinis in Philadelphia. I'll admit. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's invented this thing. And what he is is an insurance policy in case his system goes down. Bob Bogle and, some, and his company that nobody ever heard of called Fungard is going to save it. Uh... So, you know, and now that you're telling me it's been sold, I mean, this is the thread from one of the first three clients of SunGuard from the day it was born, whenever that was, I think 73, all the way to today when it sells for a couple of billion dollars. Mm -hmm. So think about that. Think of the thread there, Tone. Mine is blown, Pop. And, and for any listener right now, any story you talk to with my dad, he will go off on about five different <laughs> tangents. So I always come back, though. I always yes. come back. Not the same day all the time, but I always come back. <laughs> anyway, Bogle and I are talking about this thing he wants to sell me that my company won't buy. Equitable Life won't, doesn't, isn't interested in disaster recovery, and Bogle's uh, just the best salesman that ever lived. Anyway, I didn't set this fire, I swear. But the basement, 
Do you remember the data center that I built in Easton? Do you remember yeah. that one? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, Easton, Pennsylvania. So the data center in Easton is this incredible, thanks to Tony Randall, not me, but this incredible um, fortress at the top of a hill. And uh, it's, it's world-renowned in a short period of time. And suddenly, in the basement, there's a fire. Uh, with all our transformer equipment in the room, the transformer room where all the equipment is, the electric equipment. The uh, fire department comes in and um, we send pictures back to New York of firemen coming in in that hazmat kind of thing. You know what I mean? When yeah. they, uh, there's a lot of that. Like there's an outbreak or something. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. The, the chairman of the board is on the phone and he tells us, he's in the conference room and he tells us to. I, he wants that phone manned 24 hours a day, and he doesn't want, uh, he wants to know, he wants 15 minute updates on what's going on. The, uh, it took seven hours, but seven hours later, um, we get the systems up, and we, uh, the, everything's back to normal, and I go in the conference room, and we tell him that it's, it's, uh, everything's all right. And he gives us a blank check for this crazy thing called disaster recovery. But the funny story is this. I go down to meet with Bob Bogle to do the deal. And he says to me, you know, how do you feel about this? I said, Bob, it feels like I'm, it really feels like Equitable's buying an empty paper bag. You know, you're saying, you know, if you have a disaster, we're going to fix it. But, you don't have any equipment. You don't have any you don't have anything. <laughs> so, so how the hell are you going to do this? And he says, Larry, you got to trust me. I said, this is a lot of money to trust. <laughs> but we did it. We did it. To the point that Equitable fell so in love with disaster recovery. I'm trying to think of the year now. Hold a minute. I went to Avon 95, probably 1990, maybe the late 80s. We actually started our own disaster recovery service for mid-sized systems. Not bad. I like that that's story. It. That's a that's good. All I got, that, man. That's a good story, Pop. I like it. So that is no. So anybody yeah, that works in disaster recovery, I took reco- you. I, I don't know if I said it, but we were one of the first three um, subscribers to SunGuard. There you go. I mean, you have taken our li- our listeners. You know, everybody now works in disaster recovery and has to worry about disaster recovery. That's the whole point of you know mobility and cloud and stuff I, like that. It's cold. People more. Son, I I hate to con- I hate to correct my son in the Please. middle of his own podcast. Yeah. but it's called contingency planning. Now, yeah, yeah. You know, if we were yeah. interviewing each other right now, <laughs> I'd have some choice words for you. I'm sure. <laughs> Very good. I love you, Tom. I love you too, Pop. And well, let me ask you this. So when you found out, so when I was in college, okay, and I said to you that I'm going to go into journalism, mind you, I'd already been in college for about, what, three, four years or something like that, and I'm going to go up to Plattsburgh to go and do this. What were your thoughts? Tony, you know how much I love you and how proud I am of you. Yeah, I got you. But the truth of the matter is, do you want to tell the people in the podcast how many years you went to college? Seven and a half years to get a, B, a BS in uh, in journalism, I think it was. 
And it really was Dudek. It really was. <laughs> I said I mean, Joe for no that doubt. one. <laughs> Holy crap. You know, and, and you know what I remember that you don't remember? One day you came home. You came, you came down to, to where we were living in New York. And you say, I think I want to take a year off. I'm a little burnt out. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I'm working, I don't know, 16 hours a day. Yes. Uh, I'm driving an hour and a half each way, you know. He's burnt out. And, and look at how it's all played out. All right, all these years later, I'm interviewing you. I'm bringing you, I'm making you famous right now, okay? It's me making you famous. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what you could say is you're working and I'm not. <laughs> but, but I would say this. Yeah. I would say this. Um, you had some, um, what do you call those guys? Like a mentor. Oh, oh, remind me to tell you about, uh, Chile, but you had a mentor. I forget his name, but, but, uh, Sean Murphy, Professor Murphy, Murphy. Yeah. And I got to say that that guy, he earns his pay. He he did a good job with you. All right. Chile. Uh, Are we close? Chile. Chile. Yeah, I got Um, it. Um, how close are we to pulling to tapping this puppy? I, I think one more story, and then we're all set. One more story. Okay, this is for uh, leaders in your audience, like me, who would. Um, do you hear that buzzing in the back? I, I don't, but you might be having a stroke right now, Pop. So I don't know. <laughs> No, no, no. I, hold a minute. I, I got to plug in my phone. I think it might be dying. Hold a minute. That would be a great abrupt end to this uh, whole podcast, Pop. No, no, no. Relax. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is exactly right, what is dead air. Yeah. What do you got, Pop? All right. All right. So, um, well, a lot of things. I, I got two stories in my head. I'm going to try not to, you know, con- conflagate them. Is that a word? Anyway, well, you know, you're only a journalist. Yeah. Um, so, which one am I going to go with? Go with both, Pop. We, we don't have a time limit here. You know, if people want to stop listening, they can always just click right. the stop button. All right, all right, I got two stories. I'll do them as quick as I can. And the do first it. one's about leadership. Anything and worth doing one, is worth doing well. Do them well. Give them the time they need. All right, here's what we got. The first one, um, I get sent to a corporate leadership, uh, whatever you call that stuff in Chile. And so they bring in everybody from all over the world, all the leaders in the world to be in this uh, leadership session. And at every table, so maybe there's, I don't know, I'm going to get eight tables. Mm-hmm. At every table, there's a coach. And I'll never forget the coach we had. I wish I could remember the company that did this. They did such a great job. But this woman at our table, what she would do is um, she would she would meet with us after the day uh, and just go over what she saw. And at the end of the session, at the end of the week, they would she would uh, well, each table, but she would uh, meet with each individual and give them uh, what she felt was the what she her her opinion of all leadership style. Okay. 
So my lesson here for whoever's listening, um, she said she said I was a great, I was a wonderful leader. You're wonderful, yeah. Got it, Donald yeah. Trump. I, and <laughs> what you know? Do you remember what Grandma Pinto used to say to me? Grandma Pinto used to say, "Lorenzo, you're gonna break your arm patting yourself on the back." <laughs> but, um, so she said, "Larry, you're a great leader. Everybody." Everybody is listening to you. Everybody wants to do what you're recommending, but sometimes you become so forceful that instead of watering these ideas with a garden hose, you're blowing them away with a fire hose. And if you could just control that, it's the one thing you need to do to be a great leader. And throughout my life since then, I've often thought it that way. You can see in somebody's eyes when you're coming across too strong. I, ha- I You know, as you know, Tom, my eyes are very expressive. Sometimes <laughs> I can look insane. And, you know, some I have to, especially my eyes, I've learned that I have to control my eyes and my voice so that I get my message across and don't come across like a fire hose. Mm-hmm. It's a good, valuable lesson for everybody, including me as hey. an editor. When I'm talking with uh, my with my staff, like Dan, when Dan DeFrancesco pisses me off, you know. Exactly, <laughs> but but God knows you need this lesson. Yeah. Um, and then the second what, what, story. The second story I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me think for a minute. I remember you said. Oh Chile. yeah, 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 okay. yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is China. Um, okay, the second story is this, and it's for all the leaders out there who eat with their fingers, and I would explain it this way. I get sent to China, so I'm dealing with, in China, the the president of China, meaning the president of Avon in China, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we're sitting, there's, there must be at least a dozen of us around this huge round table with Lazy Susan in the middle. At least what I would call Lazy Susan. And I really liked um, the the president of China. I think his name was Marie. But anyway, whatever his name was, I, I really liked him. And he really liked me. And he's sending around to me every time, oh, the way the way dinner was served, they would come to his right shoulder, the waiters, mm. show him what they were serving. He would nod, put it on the ladies of Susan, and it would come around clockwise to me on the other end of the, on the other side of the table. And he's saying, Larry, you've got to try this. It's wonderful. And my goodness, I mean, I, mean, I just, I just I, I, I'm an Italian kid, and all I eat is meat, potato, and pasta. There's nothing else I eat. And suddenly, there's thousand-year eggs that have been buried in the ground for a hundred days and smell like it. <laughs> there's, 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 there's um, seaweed coming around that looked like it was from the Exxon Valdez. There's, there's, there's incredible things coming around. People eating chicken heads. <laughs> I can't do this. So I somehow managed to offend the president of China. Mm-hmm. I come home and I get sent to diversity class. (laughs) And what I learned in diversity class was this tone. I want you to remember this because this is an important lesson. When you're with a guest, when you are the guest of someone, 
um, and they offer you something, the only words out of your mouth should be yes. Never, ever let the word no come out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. You're in their house. You're in their house. You know, it's like Ted Cruz not endorsing Donald Trump. You know, it, it just doesn't work. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, um, so they sent me to the diversity class. And what I learned is this: when, when he was sending food to me and recommending it, I should have said, oh, yes, thank you. And taking it off the Lazy Susan, put, put it in my plate. And acted with my fork like I was touching it. <laughs> you don't have to eat the crap. All you got to do is not offend the person making the offer. And I did, and I I, I really regret it. I really did. I think I did offend him by the, by behavior. And and uh, actually, that class was great. That's my two lessons. That's your two lessons. Well, I'm gonna remember. Oh, this. oh one oh, yeah. more. Can I tell one more? One more quick lesson. You're, you're on a roll. Okay. What you got? Okay. Okay. One more quick lesson. So let's say you're married and you have two children, a boy and a girl, and yeah. you think you're done. Yeah. You know, and your wife says to you, you know, I think I want to have a third child. Yeah. Or I have to go to go to work, but I'm bored. I got to do something. Yeah. And let's say you say to her, listen, May, no woman of mine is ever going to marry, is ever going to work, and we're not having a third child. Yeah. And then nine months later, you have a baby named Anthony. Yeah. You know? And so the, the moral of this story is, Tone, yeah. that when you think you're in charge, you're not. Yeah. Trust me that everybody in the house knew that mom was always in charge. <laughs> <laughs> How come I didn't know? You know? You were at the Palmer all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all well, right, we done? We're done, Pop. Thanks so much for taking the time out.